and welcome to Evaluand, a podcast about the land of evaluation between you and me, your host, Dana Linnell Wanzer. This is the show where we interview people about any and all things evaluation related. We're chatting with Asha Joshi and Hannah Lantos about out-of-school time evaluation. They recently wrote a chapter called Demystifying Data, Strategies and Tools for Making Data More Meaningful in Out-of-School Time Programs. In the recently released, right, is out, the book is out? It is out. Perfect. And that book is called Measure, Use, Improve, Data Use in Out-of-School Time, edited by Christina Russell and Corey Newhouse. So we're going to be talking about that chapter and evaluation in out-of-school time context. So Asha and Hana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Thank you. So I'd like you both to start off by introducing yourselves to our listeners. Where do you currently work? How would you get into evaluation? Anything you want to tell our listeners about your background and who you are? And we'll start with you, Asha. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I have been working in research and evaluation in in in-school settings as well as out-of-school time settings for about 15 years now. And I got into this field, well, 15 years ago, and uh, or even more so at this point. And part of how I started was really when I was in college, I did an internship with a professor at a, the medical school. And it was my first introduction to research as an actual profession. I come, like nobody had ever said like, oh, these are the options for what you are going to do later in life. Doctor, lawyer, gardener, like these are all sort of the Richard scary list of professions. Um, And researcher was never one of them. And that was my first introduction to this being something that was a viable field in which you could ask questions and then your job is to answer them, which I found fascinating. So from there, I uh, looked more deeply into what does it mean to be a researcher? And then I was then introduced to the field of evaluation, to assessment and all of its subfields and its opportunities and challenges. Um, And that intersected with my interest and my deep passion for access and opportunity to learning for across the lifespan. And that is really how I got started. I then went on to do a master's, uh, do a PhD, and all of which is focused on how to understand what's going on and to improve it in the ways that we can. So where are you currently at right now? I am currently self-employed. I um, started, co-founded a boutique research firm called Clarity Writing and Research, and our clients are uh, primarily nonprofits who are looking to better use data, information, all the stuff they have to try and fulfill their missions. So really, for the clients, very, uh, a lot of times, though, we are working with how do you ask the what questions do you want to answer? It's really starting off with framing the problem, the situation, the challenge, and then moving forward from there. So this is our question. This is our goal. And what is that intermediary information data stuff that uh, we need to collect in order to answer our questions and then meet our goals? Very awesome. Thank you. Hannah, introduce yourself. 
Yeah. Um, so I think I probably first got interested in evaluation um, right after college. I was a Peace Corps volunteer and I had studied international development as an undergraduate, but ended up in Zambia where I was a Peace Corps volunteer and was really interested in trying to better understand kind of what works. And I think Peace Corps is a fascinating experience in lots of ways where you get thrown into a situation very much on your own. And I didn't really know what worked. <laughs> and so finished Peace Corps, did a master's also in international development that was very quantitatively focused. So focused again on kind of measurement economics and was uh, it was at the Kennedy School at Harvard so it was very much connected to the folks who won the Nobel uh, Nobel in economics last year the kind of randomistas of the international development world and learned a lot more about randomized control trials and re research again like Asha and so then from there ended up kind of recognized that a lot of my research questions which were around adolescent well-being maybe were better asked in a public health space than in economics um, and went on to do a PhD in public health and now do research on adolescent health and well-being. So it was an interesting, I don't actually feel like it is so far from what I was doing in Peace Corps in some ways, kind of thinking about empowering young people and providing them with the supports that kind of build on their own resiliency, but hoping to do it in ways where we can measure if we're actually impactful. Awesome. And so you're at Child Trends right now. What is, uh, what do you do at Child Trends? Yeah, I'm a research scientist at Child Trends. So Child Trends is a research institute that studies children and families primarily domestically, so in the U.S. We do a little bit of a lot of different things at Child Trends. We do some program evaluation. We do some analyses of big data sets. We do some of our own research design, you know, investigator-initiated research, and some policy analysis as well. So I tend to, I have worked on projects that are all primarily focused on adolescents, sometimes going a little bit younger, sometimes going into young adulthood, and focusing either on skill development or health and well-being. Very awesome. Thank you both for introducing yourself. I'd like to start off just a little bit about your book, uh, well, the, the chapter in the book. So uh, Hannah, do you want to tell us a little bit about that chapter? Yeah, sure. So the chapter is about demystifying data. And we really wrote this. So we at Child Trends had worked with Asha on a large evaluation over multiple years of a character development initiative at the YMCA. And we wrote this chapter based on kind of some of the experiences uh, working with lots of different folks at WISE. And the first goal of the chapter is really to encourage folks to not be fearful of evaluation. And so kind of reminding people that evaluation can be a really useful tool and that it doesn't have to be scary and intimidating. So we start off the chapter by defining what data is and defining what analysis is. And we try to do that very simply by basically saying data is any kind of information that you can use to answer questions or inform ideas. And then we define analysis as any kind of structured thinking about that data. So I think the chapter is really focused on encouraging people to think much more wisely than we sometimes do about what data is and how to use it and how much data you already have in your programs that you can think about creatively and usefully. 
So then we go on to move, after that, we move on to discussing what conceptual frameworks and logic models are, which again can sound like these scary terms, like I don't know how to make a logic model, where do I start? But that really is about honing in on the most important questions you have about your program and then thinking about where the data that you have fits into answering those questions and identifying if you need other data. So that's, that's kind of the overarching point of the chapter to kind of make, it, make data and evaluation feel a lot more accessible. Asha, did I forget anything key there? I think that, that nails it. It's, it's about really hoping that people will think about the terms data and evaluation not as intimidating, but something that is helpful. Uh, we find a lot of times in um, our field work, we've heard that, oh, I have to do data collection. A lot of times it can be funder driven or it can be board driven or it can be driven by questions other than the ones that site coordinators have, program directors have, then parents have, then kids have, then frontline practitioners have. The idea is actually you guys have questions too and the data that you are collecting potentially that is driven by other entities can be helpful to answer your own questions. Or perhaps not. Or perhaps not, right? They could also just be very, like you're collecting this data and you realize, wow, I don't need this data. I could be saving some time and energy. Absolutely. And that is one of the... That is one of the learnings that I have had, um, especially during this pandemic. When working with clients, um, I have been encouraging them really to take a step back and reflect. Many of them, or some of them at least, are thinking about like, okay, what data do I have to collect? And it's like, well, we are, your program model has changed. Like the delivery, the delivery has changed from in-person to mostly computer or screen mediated if you are holding any sorts of programming at all. So now is a great time to think about what are your questions? What are you trying to answer? What, what sort of things are you interested in so that when you go back either in person or online, you can start potentially implementing change? It's a great time to think about logic models and planning. And I think it might be useful. I mean, so we came across a lot of instances in this work with different folks in out of school time settings where they would kind of say, well, I don't have any data. And we'd ask them, like, do you collect attendance? And they'd say, yeah, of course we collect attendance. And I was like, well, that's data. Why, you know, there's some data. Or I had a conversation with someone once about how they were kind of trying to figure out whether or not kids kind of felt engaged in a summer program. And she talked about how at the end of every single day, they had the kids put an emotion that they felt at the end of the day on a post-it note and put it on the wall. I was like, that's data. You know, you don't have to do a big, huge survey to figure out if kids are doing well in your program or finish it in a positive mood or feel positively about the program, you know, you can look at those post-it notes every single day and kind of get a sense of whether or not the, the overarching emotion in those notes is positive, right? That 
in and of itself is also kind of analysis, right? You're looking at them, you're thinking about what's there, you're looking at kind of if you were going to clump them together into different groups, you don't even have to do the moving of the post-it notes. But what do you see? And kind of what are the patterns you notice? And that's data and that's analysis. And it doesn't have to be a huge, massive randomized control trial that you hire someone like me or Asha to come in and do the statistical analyses for. You know, there's a time and place for that kind of analysis, and they can be very valuable, but that by no means is where anybody should start and is not going to inform the kind of data they collect every so. What do, you th- what do you think they think data means if they didn't think like attendance is data? So I have asked this question, Dana. <laughs> um, and in fact, um, when Hannah and I were working together on the Y Project, we actually hosted webinars and uh, in-person meetings about this because one of the things that we heard a lot of is, oh, well, that's not data because people immediately start thinking about sample size and um, whether it is statistically significant Hmm. rather than, and which certainly have a time and place, but it's, in my experience, it doesn't seem to be connected to anything other than these are terms that um, have been deemed very important. So we can take a step back and think about, well, what counts as data? So, and what is the purpose of collecting data? So are you thinking about when you're thinking about sample size, is that connected to like, do you want to make this data generalizable to not just your program, but to the entire nation, which is a much bigger sort of thing. So it's being able to think about, okay, data as information that has been sort of systematically collected. Attendance is one of that. I think that my anecdotal thought about what people think counts as data is that it must be numerical. And then it must somehow be tied to these terms that they have heard. Um, And those are catchy terms. But this is just based on a general impression rather than really thinking about people's schemas and mental maps of what counts as data. Yeah, and I don't know that, I mean, I'm not sure... I asked in those specific instances, what do you think data is? So it's a really interesting question. But I also think that a lot of people think data is from a survey. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the only way to actually collect data on the participants' experiences in my program is to write a survey, make sure that every single student fills it out, which feels really stressful. Maybe I need parental consent to do that. And then have to analyze it. And I don't necessarily know how to do that and and don't feel really comfortable doing it. So I think that, you know, thinking about or that attendance doesn't necessarily answer the questions they want to ask. And so that they don't necessarily think it's data because it's not the exact question. But when we were kind of asking, you know, do you see trends in your attendance data? Do you see that some kids attend on some days and some kids don't, you know, are there patterns that you're noticing? Do you notice that like all the kids don't show up when you have a football game? (laughs) You know, are there things that can inform you that can help you understand why your program isn't necessarily reaching the goals you want it to be reaching based on some of the attendance data? And often it, is useful, right? But they kind of don't necessarily think that something that's so easy would be data. And I would add thinking about sort of ease, a lot of times things that are 
quote unquote qualitative or more narrative in nature seem to be dismissed. So in the chapter, there was a, a great example of one organization wanting to know why their turnover was so high. And what they did was, and they recognized from the numbers like, oh, this is this is a lot of people leaving and coming in and then leaving. And so from that, it wasn't just the impression of, wow, we have high turnover. It was it bore out in their actual numbers. And then they were able to ask leavers, why were they leaving? Which counts as data? And really gather that information and then analyze it. And so think about that information in a systematic way and then do something with it. Plan like, okay, so given people's impressions, given their reasons, how do we then address that? Yeah. So I love it. I love the example of the qualitative. I love the example of the attendance. Uh, The attendance example, I think, is really useful because asking why people are turning over is probably like an organization wide question we're going to ask. But asking about like attendance trends is something that each individual staff member could be looking at that data themselves. And it doesn't have to be this big organization wide analysis of attendance. I could be as if I were staff member and I noticed there's a dip in attendance today, like I could go figure that out myself and, and use that for my own purposes. Or if I'm like a coordinator at a particular site, I have my particular site and perhaps I'm comparing to other sites or not, but I know my site best. You know, me coming in as evaluator, I don't know your site best. And I'm trying to aggregate across, let's say 50 sites. I have a hard time doing that across 50 sites. So I'm gonna find ways to aggregate it like public versus charter or within this district or this district. And that's gonna lose some of that nuance that like staff, and site coordinators and like people on the ground doing the work can do those answers, which gives them a bit more like they have power over this process too. It's not just this evaluator coming in, like staff can be doing this as well. Yeah. And I think, I mean, one of the things that we've started doing more and more for so many projects that we work on is that we have at the end of a uh, kind of either at the end of doing some of the analysis or even before some of the analysis, we have a data party sometimes with key stakeholders mm-hmm. um, where we share, you know, sometimes we share the, the beginnings of those analyses to say like, look, this is what we're starting to find in terms of, you know, how many kids who are part of this program actually get employed, right? Or we're starting to see that the kids who are part of this program are really finding jobs and the kids who are part of this program are not finding jobs. You know, why do you guys think that might be? Help us understand kind of the linkages between the exposure and the outcome and the things we didn't collect data about, right? And sometimes that helps inform kind of next rounds of data collection, right? They identify things that we wish we had collected data on. <laughs> it kind of sets up hypotheses for the next study or the next round of data collection. And sometimes it helps with interpretation and kind of context building around what the findings really are, because sometimes you kind of get these findings. And I think that's another thing that can be scary about evaluation is if you get what you might call bad findings, you don't necessarily want to talk about them. You're scared to make them public. But that this kind of conversation around how to interpret the results is one of the things that can kind of give context to the findings and say, you know, we maybe didn't do, we didn't have quite the results we were hoping to have, but we think this might be why. And this is what we're going to look at next. 
And I would add to the idea of a data party, which I have hosted and they are really fabulous, but that word party is just as important as data. So typically a really good party means that you have guests that are interacting with each other. So it's not just the host talking, but you actually have people that are talking to each other about a thing. So instead of, you know, scintillating conversation around uh, television, which I love to do, this is going to be scintillating, probing conversations around, hey, what's happening in our program? Or, hey, what's happening in your program? It is really important when if you're thinking about a data party or if you're really thinking about analysis or interpretation to think about talking with others so that you can get a perhaps the same perspective a different perspective of what this information is telling you yeah also think about party favors if you're going to host a data party so any sort of physical material that you can hand out So this could be a printout of a dashboard, which Hannah and I have definitely done when we have hosted data parties. It can be um, a list of questions, but something that helps to start to ground that conversation. Definitely. Yeah. Well, and I like how you just like, it has to be a party, like make it fun, bring the cake, bring the the little uh, party favors and all that type of stuff. Definitely. Your party favors are your (laughs) post-it notes. (laughs) It's funny you you bringing up party uh, data parties because I, for the longest time, d- didn't think I'd ever done dating parties. And then I realized all the times I've been working with uh, one of my old clients doing after school uh, program evaluation. Yeah, we did data parties all the time. I don't know why I didn't mm-hmm. put the two together. I'd, I'd um, We'd put together like site level reports for them so that they'd have their own site reports, plus like everybody's like the overall like aggregate and leave them time to noodle on their own stuff and give ideas and about their context and also compare and contrast and talk about why and think about like what's going on i i don't know why i never put the two together i never called it a data party and i think it was kind of before i heard that term in the first place so interesting yeah dana i don't remember what we called that before the term of data party because i think that is part and parcel to a lot of evaluation and a lot of client work it is okay so it's not just that your external evaluator has written a report it's that we are working with you to make sense of these numbers these this narrative and want to hear learn get your feedback on whether our interpretations make sense and i don't know what we called that just feedback a debrief or something (laughs) yeah debrief debrief meetings in a lot of like proposals but they really were in the beginnings of a party I guess I always just thought they were part of like the capacity building process that I always try to bring to my approach or the continuous quality improvement cycle like 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 that CQI process needs to be at the at the site level as well, or at least uh, that's how we were approaching it. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, they need to have their own set of data. They need to have ownership of what they're doing, and they need to think about their own particular context. Well, I can't come in without data for them. <laughs> I mean, they could potentially bring their own in, but I already have it. Why can't I bring it? And then that guides our conversation about developing their CQI process. Right. And so it's really the start of making meaning. A lot of times. So not necessarily being introduced to the data, but sometimes people for the first time are hearing about their programs or hearing a bigger picture of their program. And then really starting on that making meaning process. So then you can think about, okay, 
like it's the move from the descriptive to the interpretive. So what do our data say about our work to what do the data mean for our work? And then you can start on that action planning piece. And sometimes the data will say, we're not going to do anything. The action plan is that we are going to have sometimes the courage to do nothing or to keep on the right track. It depends on what is borne out in the findings. So I'm curious, I think both of you also work in other contexts out of out of school time. So I'm curious, like, do you think there's anything unique about doing evaluation in these contexts as compared to other youth contexts, other non-youth contexts? Like, is there anything unique about it that that I think you think is like useful to share if anybody's interested in doing evaluation in these in these sectors? I think one of the things is, is that there are a lot more varied outcomes in a lot of out-of-school time programs. And so, you know, in a, in a lot of academic settings, you're really looking at academic outcomes. In health, you're looking at health outcomes. In out-of-school time programs, you might be looking at both of those, you know, academic and health, but you're probably also looking at social-emotional learning. You're probably also looking at a number of kind of soft skill development, you know, how are kids developing confidence or sense of self, an identity, you know, you're getting into a lot of um, identity focused programs and out of school time. You might also be getting into kind of arts programs, you know, theater, dance, fine arts, where maybe your real outcome in those programs isn't necessarily artistic skill, (laughs) but that it is about something about the process of participating in that program. And so I think sometimes it can feel overwhelming maybe to figure out kind of what your key outcomes are for an out-of-school time program, but that also it can be very freeing because there's there's a lot of ways to think about the well-being of young people in these programs, right? And so I think that is both kind of a challenge and an opportunity and an opportunity to think about what, what really your goal of the program really is in a way that in other settings, you might not have that kind of flexibility. I think I would add to that, that one of the things I've noticed is that in the out-of-school time space, although they may, or although practitioners or administrators may not want to do evaluation or begrudge data collection, it is really ingrained that we are going to collect some sort of data. Um, And as Hannah said, a lot of times people think it is a survey, But that, when I move into different context, all of the sort of jargon that really is quite, that people in the out-of-school time world seem to be quite fluent in, does not work. So it feels like, sometimes it feels like an odd space of, there is so much evaluation happening in this space, but we're not necessarily thinking about for who or what questions it's answering. Like if we think about data, and I've heard this, this I think has popped up in the last five to 10 years. If we think about data as a way to tell stories, we also have to think about, well, telling the story about who, for who, and to who. And a lot of times in the out-of-school time space, the practitioner or the parents or the youth themselves are not the to who or even the for who. But the still that jargon and that language is ever present. Well, and I think that comment also, Aja, makes me think that in out-of-school time 
programs, I think you also have a really unique opportunity to engage young people themselves in ways that sometimes in other evaluation settings, it's either harder or even if I think it should be a priority, it's not often a priority. But in out-of-school time settings, there's a lot of opportunities to engage young people themselves very actively in the research. And so that can be in focus groups, that can be in interviews, that can just be you can do it really formally with kind of youth participatory action research protocols and whatnot, but it also just lends itself to really getting feedback from the young people, which is such an important data source, you know? I mean, we do a lot of research on positive youth development, and we always say you can never know if there is actually a positive youth development approach being used unless you ask the youth themselves if they feel they're being supported positively. And you can ask the staff all you want, you know, are you, do you engage in a positive youth development approach? But unless you actually know that the young people experience that, it doesn't, it's not necessarily happening. Oh, those are such good points. Do you think that after-school programs experiencing experience more evaluation than other other similar areas? And do you think it might be because of like the 21st century community learning community, uh, center programs and that like federal funding tied to a lot of a lot of after-school programs? I think there's a lot of push in the last decade. 20 years to really tie after school programs to academic outcomes. So you see that in 21st century learning centers for sure. And so I think we are seeing more evaluation of of academic outcomes in after school programs. I would say I don't think we're seeing as much evaluation in out of school time or after school programs in general on some of the other things around you know, and, and some of those other outcomes like identity formation or confidence or empathy building, which was part of the CDLI, the Y project, are harder to measure. (laughs) You know, they are variables and outcomes that are harder than did your test scores increase. So it's, there, there are clear reasons why that would be harder and more expensive to do. But I think also really an important part of adolescent well-being and growing up. And so Yes and no, I guess, is the answer to that question. Like, yes, I think we're starting to see more evaluation in general, kind of like we're seeing more high stakes testing in education in general. You know, we see more numeric, holding people to numeric outcomes in terms of academic outcomes, but probably a little bit less than I would like, at least, of kind of assessing how programs are doing to kind of support the whole child and their whole person development. Yeah, and there definitely is a lot of focus on those academic outcomes, even if that's not the point of that after-school program, which is always a little frustrating when, some for some reason, federal money or grant money is tied towards academic outcomes, but that's not the purpose of the, of the program at all. And so then they're reporting something, collecting data on something that has no meaning for the abs- for, for that particular program. And doesn't fit into their conceptual model, right? I mean, I think this is why the conceptual model, logic model piece is so important of like, why do we think what we're doing is going to impact this outcome? And I think a lot of those funding opportunities that want to look at educational and academic outcomes think that there is something happening, you know, that just being in an out-of-school program will improve your academic outcomes. But that's such a tenuous, you know, that's not a 
clear link. And so I think um, encouraging programs, and I, I think that a lot of practitioners would say, I know exactly, you know, what our theory of change is and our mission statement is, and we only get funding because we say, we'll look at this outcome. So we look at the outcome. So I, I recognize that some of it is is kind of happening behind the scenes to some extent, and people are being holding themselves accountable to other things that maybe aren't what they're kind of putting out there because they have to put the, the other outcomes out there. But so I think thinking through that conceptual model and really thinking, you know, like, why do we think that a, a theater program is going to, I mean, this one's an obvious one. Why do we think a theater program is going to increase confidence, right? Because kids are going to learn how to public speak. They're going to learn how to speak in front of their peers and also maybe their parents. You know, for me as a high school student, I would have hated that because standing up in front of people and speaking was my like biggest fear. But you can see why that would be a logical conceptual framework, right? And I think that so people don't have time. It's hard. It takes time, which is Asha's point also about COVID. You know, right now, maybe people have the time if programs are a little bit on hold to really think about some of those connections and some of those, what is your mission statement? How do you get from A to B? Yeah, so I'd love to pivot and talk about COVID-19. I wonder, one of you, could you start off talking about how COVID-19 has impacted out-of-school time programs in the first place? I think we get a sense from the news about how it's affected schools, but how has it affected like the out-of-school time programs that you work with? So I've seen a few things. Some programs are shutting down entirely because they um, really rely on an in-person model. Other, and then we have... Other programs are shifting to uh, online delivery. And then other programs or organizations, which I find sort of personally fascinating, is thinking about how do we partner differently or at all. So who is doing the kinds of work or has the same common mission or common goal that we have? And how do we... So a lot of times that is actually schools and out of school time. So... I've seen a number of schools partnering with out-of-school time programs or organizations that potentially wouldn't have happened before. And we see also other out-of-school time organizations partnering together. Um, one of the examples I'm thinking of is uh, a YMCA in North Carolina. And uh, one of the directors had said, well, they are now partnering with Boys and Girls Club, a local museum, the city of the city itself and their parks and rec department, as well as uh, school districts to the call was to have space for over 20,000 students. Well, one organization cannot do that. Um, so it really required partnerships across all of these different entities that potentially saw themselves as competitors rather than collaborators. And who potentially, or at least often, aren't integrated into the school system. It is thought of, when we think about, I mean, just in our terms, we think of school time and out of school time. So we have already chopped up how we talk about what it, does it mean to take a sort of positive youth development approach. It is, the delineator is sort of, well, when is it happening or where is it happening? And even just that language, I think, sort of indicates, well, these are different things in different spaces. And a lot of times they are different spaces, but sometimes they're the same. So in terms of COVID-19, I've seen 
sort of an array of different responses. And the ones that are really exciting me are, um, is this partnership aspect, as well as the response to take a moment and revamp some of your data collection tools. One of my clients is doing just that. It's like, this tool is not working for us and it is too cumbersome and the sites, our sites are not saying they're getting anything helpful out of it. Cool, then let's take the moment now to revise our survey. I think another thing with out of school time programs, I mean, I think so much, what, one of the things that is so important about out of school time programs is that it is a time for young people to connect with adults who are not their parents and not teachers. And in this time of COVID, that is a huge loss, you know, that young people don't have those other adults checking in on them. And we've heard from, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics that there's fears of child abuse and neglect that aren't getting reported because kids aren't interacting with these adults. And and those are often teachers or religious leaders who are doing that kind of reporting. But in a less extreme example, like let's not go all the way to abuse, (laughs) Um, out of school time program staff are people who check in on kids, right? And that has gotten so much harder this year. And whether that is happening virtually or in some kind of hybrid model, or they're checking in over social media, or they're partnering in these new kind of innovative ways that Asha is mentioning, um, I think the goal and the drive for so many of those folks is to really just still make sure that kids are doing okay. And, you know, meeting some basic needs, checking in on their families. Um, And so I think one way to like continue to build some of those partnerships is to kind of remind other folks that that is a role you can play. And so in some of some of the people we're talking to right now who tend to work in schools, either um, providing kind of extracurricular activities or out of school time or whatever, is to remind school administrators, you know, we're another adult who can help you do this right now. And you have so much on your plate (laughs) trying to pivot completely online some of the time. Like, let us help you and let us think about creative ways to reach young people. Um, And then I think the other thing that is kind of interesting is, yeah, people have kind of Zoom fatigue and are sick of staring at the computer and all of that. But I think that there are ways to think about connecting to young people now that are a little bit more creative than we did before. And so this is kind of pushing some of us out of our uh, routines and maybe our our boring routines a little um, and forcing us to think about ways to use video and ways to use music and ways to use photos um, to connect both in synchronous time and asynchronous time and kind of how, how, you know, how can, how can that be done creatively? Um, Hannah, are we going to see you on TikTok? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> um, although we did shift a project. So one of the evaluations we're doing that this year was supposed to do, be a bunch of in-person interviews. We've shifted to a photo voice exercise, for example. Um, so we had initially wanted to um, essentially tell this is young adults, so 18 to 25 year olds who we were interviewing, but we were going to let them tell us where to meet them. So we were interested in their neighborhoods and their homes, their communities, their employ- their places of employment. And we were going to just say, you know, what do you want to show us about your life? Um, and we can't do that now because we can't travel to meet them, but we've shifted to a photo voice exercise. So we're still going to get 
some sense from them of kind of what are the visually, what do you want to show us about your lives? And I think it's going to, it has been fun to design so far. And I think most of the young adults who we've interviewed for the first stage of the project are pretty interested in the next stage. And so I'm really hoping that it goes well. And even maybe post-COVID, if there is a post-COVID, we would continue to use that, that kind of method to collect data. That's awesome. So it's not just thinking about as the photo voice as a replacement for the in-person interview. Um, It is actually like, oh no, this is a different way and a different approach that we can take that can live on past. It's not a stopgap, but it's actually something new and potentially really fruitful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, engaging young people in that data collection process in ways that will hopefully give us some really interesting data um, and and promote some interesting conversations. I wish we had time to do kind of a much longer photo voice exercise with them and do this over multiple months, um, but we're going to have one focus group. <laughs> but yeah, it, if it works well, you know, in the future, it could be something that we do over a longer period of time. That's very cool. Yeah. Asha, what are, what are you doing? How are you responding to COVID-19? I'm wearing a lot more leggings than I ever thought possible. <laughs> um, and I, um, like a lot of people, was initially uh, laid off during the uh, beginning of the pandemic. So personally, it um, has directly affected my work because I used to work at the Y and lots and lots of Ys were shut down and closed. So me like I think it was, well, a big number of people were um, laid off um, from the national office. So that was, from a personal level and a professional level, it has directly affected what I do. But that also means that I, previously I have always done gig work, but I was able to really formalize that into client work. From gig work to client work, a pandemic story. Um, (laughs) So that is a big shift that this is now, and I'm still personally trying to make that shift. So to say that I am a small business owner or self-employed, I'm trying to, you know, speak that into the universe. And that has been neither good nor bad. It just is different. Well, I'm sorry to hear that you, uh, you know, you lost your job at the beginning of the pandemic. I know um, there's many people who are who have experienced that but I'm glad it sounds like a sounds like you're already kind of making the shift in the first place so perhaps serendipitous that uh you'd already been doing a little bit of this work and enjoyed doing it one of the amazing things is the variety that I am exposed to it is getting to see getting to see um organizations really across the nation that are in school out of school time maybe related to youth development, maybe not, and what they are really thinking about when they think about data. And these sort of, I think the through line through all of this is really the point of the chapter. It can't, data can actually be very helpful. Um, It can come in a variety of forms. Analysis does not have to be scary. Analysis can be and start with a conversation or it can start with an idea of like, why didn't my kids show up this week? And that data can then answer those questions that you have. 
um, if the analysis is done. And then from that analysis, you can start the plan. You can start with a logic model. You can start with your guide and filling in those, okay, what are my questions? What do I need to answer these questions? Do I already have that data? And then what am I going to do with it afterwards? Like, why am I asking this question in the first place? Um, does this help how is this going to help me? And I think that gets to a bigger point of like, why are we even collecting data in the first place beyond like compliance? And it's really, I think there are sort of two categories, probably more. One is like, most likely you're not going to oops your way into excellence. There are lots of ways to run high quality, excellent youth development programming. Most of those ways are not just things that happen by chance. So part of structuring a high quality program, designing a high quality program, implementing a high quality program, continuously improving a high quality program means that you are checking in with how your staff and volunteers are doing, with how your kids are doing. And that means collecting data. I mean, and another time, maybe a different extreme is, and I've heard this, that, oh no, we, look, I know, I know we're doing an excellent job. And Sometimes you probably are, but by not collecting data and analyzing it, there is the risk of just well, becoming a legend think, in your mind. Sorry. So it, it if you are not about just kind of running like an excellent your program, primary outcomes of interest and your explanatory you outcomes, missing or, or out and your really sorry the, outcomes, the youth and kind of to serve yes, there are, are these things out. we want to be held accountable for, and we think we're doing. I'm not saying that people aren't doing a great job and just sort of know it because sometimes they do. Like we talked about earlier, from context from that really knowing the details. Of their program, knowing outcomes, the right, details of their kids' lives. If you could show that you're also a lot of doing times those things that, really well, but it that'd is be not amazing, formalized. Right? And so, it and if you aren't necessarily, necessarily doing them quite well because you haven't been be putting parents, lots of energy or resources towards to them, then there's lots of reasons you wouldn't necessarily be seeing improvements in some of those outcomes. But maybe you're curious. I think maybe you're curious about does your theater program improve kids' skills around empathy? That's not your primary goal, but you. I like it if that happened. The world would be a better know, place we if that happened. It kind job. of makes me think that Hides that's a piece of evaluation because we put so much kind of right? high You're stakes on evaluation sometimes that, that people doing. don't there are want areas to go down those every, kind of exploratory paths right? like, when really that would be so useful for them to think about in terms of their program, but also it would be useful to other programs and would be useful to encouraging us all to kind of think about evaluation as a learning process as opposed to a the, the we desire to or we continuously tweak and improve, in um, my opinion. And I think like, that's like, no, we're, so we've, important. We've made it. And I think, done. I mean, and, when you were talking, Asha, uh, earlier it just now, it also made me think about how it was so interesting that for the CDLI, the, the Character Development Learning Institute, which was the Y initiative, the outcomes were staff outcomes. You know, ultimately the goal was to improve kids' character development skills, but the theory of change was focused on first being able to improve staff ability to support kids' outcomes. And so their understanding of empathy, their understanding of emotion regulation, their ability to model it were the first outcomes that we looked at because that was the, the first goal, you know, trying to ultimately improve kids' own ability to express empathy was going to be a longer term process. But showing that we could improve staff's understanding of empathy and the kinds of practices that they could engage in it through either specific activities or just day-to-day -day interactions 
were the first step. And looking at them both was important. We didn't like forget kid outcomes, but it wasn't the primary thing we were holding ourselves accountable to. Mm-hmm. Right. And which also often can help retain them, right? Because if they feel like they're being invested in themselves and valued for these skills that they likely think are important, you know, most people who work with young people come to it because they want to support young people. And so emphasizing that the value of that and that you care that they are good at their jobs and that you're going to help them get better at their jobs is validating to a lot of staff. Yeah. And that gets back to your earlier point, Hannah, about a lot of times these out of school time adults are the ones who are checking in on kids. And part of why we picked looking at the adults in the room, because the adults in the room have. Yeah, for sure. Um, And I think the development, you know, well, and I think there's harmful and emotional learning skills for children. And part of that means not just being empathetic yourself, but having that pedagogical skill to support development. Of course you want to know that. I mean, again, of course you want to know it's harmful also, but those are, that's such an opportunity for expanding, right? Expanding your sense of the program, expanding your sense of what's possible. programming skills that staff and volunteers need separate from their content area, separate from being a basketball coach? I I think that coming back to that very first um, comment of like evaluation, we should work to be making evaluation not scary. You know, evaluation as a term, I think, can feel so intimidating. And if we actually kind of distill it down into this idea of learning about our programs, learning about how to reach and support kids better, that feels a lot less scary, but that's kind of what evaluation should be, and we should be pushing. Yeah, the so idea is that data collection or evaluation consumers of those evaluations. Rather, you know, it should be part I, of I've this continuous I've had clients process, who say, like, well, I don't want that. Process. That's too complicated, Hopefully, or that's not what we care yeah, about. And, and then, you know, the, push, the exploratory push outcomes, you know, what matters to your program. It is that we're looking at unintended consequences as well, right? And and how those can be hidden if we're not taking that learning stance. And especially if they're harmful unintended consequences, like what is being hidden by, by uh, focusing on the primary outcomes, for example.
there anything else you want to share about evaluation, about out-of-school time context, anything? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things I would, Tyler, we talked about a lot, uh, but potentially <laughs> one of the things to add about evaluation and out of school time uh, context is that those contexts don't live by themselves. So youth experiences and even adult experiences are connected to other settings, such as school, mm -hmm. such as work, such as home, such as family. So really thinking about when we do an evaluation to think about what it can and what it cannot tell us. So I don't know how that will play out in one's design, but that is sort of bearing in mind that an evaluation, one evaluation, one tool is not going to tell you everything you could possibly want to know. But it is important to ask your questions about what do you want to know and what are some initially easy ways to answer that. And then think about, you know, start with small steps. I think that's Definitely. my take on really, point. Start with small steps. Yeah. There we go. I got love to it. in the end. <laughs> that answer was a journey. <laughs> well, I did love the, the, the beginning where, I mean, I do think that it's working in after school context that really helped me work on like a systems perspective to oh, evaluation. Yeah. Like there are, sure, we should, I think we should be taking a systems perspective to all of our evaluation, right? We can't think of the, the program as a black box, right? That's yeah, sure. not I in mean, situation, I think right? That this, but it's the actual uh, program that really got I think me that thinking there the most. to kind of thinking about like the whole the child is kind of giving so me life right now. Um, I don't know that this is specifically, I mean, it's not school, specifically evaluation, but kind of thinking a, about at, the at ways, the and that ties to the systems conversation we were just having, but the ways that there are just so many outcomes that are useful to think about for kids. And that the parents having have just as much say of like how the student like, comes into the all of the different like, parts of a kid's life to do after school, and the ways well, that you can you school, only have right? control like, over some they, of them even if that but understanding and respecting you know, you that kids have all of these multiple yeah. dimensions yeah. the system perspective is mr rogers kind of used to say this but it can also feel overwhelming so there is that play people. of, we think of them wow, this kind is of somehow different than adults, but anywhere. you know, all of the things that bother but adults are going to bother like, kids okay, and how does my work they have their own stressors and their own that are things that are difficult and kind of thinking about that and bringing that perspective so into the evaluations we do the idea around of being able to young people and particularly me for adolescents. I think adolescents have such a bad rep. Everybody thinks of them as having a bad attitude and pushing back and whatnot, but it's such an opportunity a period of okay. life so, with so uh, much opportunity for growth like and one of them comes from uh, learning and setting yourself up on a good path and kind of thinking about the many dimensions of, what's of a, giving you life right now and I like to just life kind of focus on really is there anything in evaluation right that's giving you life right now and then Hannah you want to start us off 
What is next? Um, I I am really hoping to be working. I mean, I think so many people are focused on kind of the long-term impacts of COVID on kids' outcomes, but I think trying to better understand with some nuance, you know, I think we've seen some headlines in the last couple of weeks around, you know, adolescents are getting more sleep during COVID and that's actually a good thing. But what are some of the long-term impacts of this on their well-being, their mental health, me, like, but right also now, their kind of goal setting and, and dreams around what's possible. And, about, like, and so I just finished a proposal looking at kind of developing a really navigator, yet, mental health navigator model really in schools to, to navigate um, students and, and their parents navigate the mental health system, demanding. but specifically so around all the kind things of COVID that are associated with data collection challenges to mental health. Fingers crossed we will get that. Especially if it's not but integrated kind of into any questions that the staff or volunteers or the program actually has about itself, there is the possibility to start doing that. There is what's giving me life actually is taking that step back and encouraging others to do so and really think about what are your questions? What are your tools? Is this helping us? And if it is, awesome. And if it's not, okay, can we abandon it or do we modify it? So really... Perhaps it's that deep breath that we all kind of need, not just at a personal level, but at that professional level as well. Oh, I love it. Thank you. Thank you both. Anything coming up for either of you that you want to share with our listeners? Anything coming up? What's next? I hope not. <laughs> Something that I think about and am thinking about more so in the time of COVID is not just these informal learning environments that kids ex, um, are ex experiencing in out-of-school time spaces, but just informal learning environments for adults as well. Like thinking about the equivalent of out-of-school time space across the lifespan. So, and that is, I mean, I think that's a fascinating topic. And it really, I feel like I have more time 
to think not just about out of school time, but thinking about these informal environments, settings, and what does that mean to conduct an evaluation or do research for these other age groups? Ooh, fascinating. And what, I feel what like I maybe like have a clearer settings uh, answer to this in some ways, but I think one of clubs, the things museums, that I feel home like spaces, COVID, um, I hope COVID makes us that think about is kind of a youth games. and young adult there strategy are, I mean, for the country. The, that I think the this settings is going to be almost a life-changing trajectory so, changing what moment that for so, for so many young people um, and whether that um, changes kind of what their interest in studying is or what is even available for them to about, study like, hey, is we're done it's so it's over and it's true, our, you know we don't so think that. I think that is something that I have heard but it's nice to think about okay so what are, what know, are adults expands doing into in young their, adulthood and that young people are learning and changing into their like work late 20s life balance um, and learning seems how to either, be well, who they want to be I, I can't generalize so I, I really don't know if people are nationally about how to support or differently this, these in young people and so i hope a lot that some of us don't have understanding of resilience, but also so the needed supports is something. So these informal spaces, from us what is even thinking about? I, like, I don't know again, how much I have faith that we will, but and I hope we time, do. For adults, a lot of times it's work and not work. <laughs> um, and we think about those as physical yeah. spaces, but when that physical yeah. barrier is removed, then what? And yeah, yeah, so I'm thinking about that. And it's something that I have always I've done, you know, been so a part of evaluations in those spaces, website. So, but I now have my child trends email. Will you post that? That sounds fascinating. If I send it to you. <laughs> okay. So the best way is through my child trends email. <laughs> thank you this was fun um and i hope i hope useful and i hope the chapter is useful to some folks I do too. I I have I am trying to maintain that hope as well. It's it's difficult sometimes, but yeah. Well, Asha Hana, thank you so much. This was so much fun. If any of our listeners would like to get in contact with you, how can they best find you? Yeah, I'll post that as well. Mm -hmm. Perfect. I am email as well, and the best way is to go to claritywritingandresearch.com, and there is a, hey, get in contact with us, and that will, and you will then be in contact with me. <laughs>
Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having us. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please visit the podcast website at evalueland.fireside.fm where you can subscribe to get notified of new episodes and contact us with your questions, comments, or suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, this has been Evalueland.